The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Leading Edge Cricket Podcast. A Richless Rob is the one man show today. Rich isn't feeling too well. He's a little bit under the weather, so we send him a best and we'll see him next time for the second test preview, which is coming very soon. But first, the Gabinator. See, at the Gabba Tim Payne, no, we won't. Tim Payne wasn't there. But the first test, it's been and gone. And for all the hype, 18 months of preparation, it all comes down to the ashes. It means more. There's the late night coffee. There's getting the pizzas and there's the excitement. Your WhatsApp groups are going absolutely mental. And the sense of optimism is absolutely massive. Selection. No Broad, no Anderson. First time since 2006 that this has taken place. And you can person across the country would have turned around and gone, there's no Broad and Anderson. What, what do we do? This is what we've grown up on. This is bread and butter. This is pudding. This is what you expect when you watch England play cricket. And they weren't there. Now, there was a lot of rumours down in Australia that Broad wasn't fit. He was coming off a calf injury. Calf injuries can niggle around a little bit like his length to David Warner. But it might have been the best thing to keep him out of it. Let him get some more bowling time in the nets rather than going into the first test and on the second day you without one of your frontline bowlers. 
And there's a lot of talk that Jimmy may have been in the same boat, not necessarily a calf injury, but not quite up to fitness. And you've got to look at it and you've got to go, Jimmy's probably going to play three test matches out of five down in Australia. Where do you want him to play his cricket? Let me tell you now, it's not the Gabba. He averages 29 at Adelaide, 29 at Sydney, 24 at Melbourne, 40 at the Wacker, but 75 at the Gabba. Don't, don't. Just rest him for the Gabba, mate. Just give him a break. And with having Ben Stokes back into that lineup, it does give more of a sense of balance that you've got that fourth seamer that you can go and rely on. A lot's been made about the toss as well. England won the toss first day of the Ashes series. What are you going to do, Nasser Hussain? We're going to have a ball. Well, Joe Root didn't do that. And was he spooked by the, the, the legacy of the Hussain decision? Possibly. Could he have looked at it and gone, hey, it's green, it might do a bit early doors? Possibly. But... I'm not saying it's a safe option. However, to me it is. The safe option for a captain is if you bat and you fail, that's, it's not necessarily 100% on you. It's on the other guys that haven't scored runs. Whereas if you bowl first and they score 500, it's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get all the flack for this. So it, it kind of diverts that situation. If I look at the balance of this England team, we're a better bowling team than we are a batting team. I think everyone can agree on that. This is one of the, the poorest England batting lineups we've had in a long, long time. I can see 100% what certain why he would have wanted to go and have a bat in this situation. And it comes down to moments at the start. You've got Michael Slater. One of my fondest memories as a kid is the 1994 VHS. Defreitas outside off, bang, cut for four. Harmison, friends round watching the Ashes, bowls the ball to slip. And now there's a new one. I'm on my phone to my mate and... First ball, Rory burns his foot, his three foot outside off stump, his head's outside there, and leg stump is cartwheeling. The ball swings an absolute mile. Shane Warne, oh no, it didn't, it didn't swing, it didn't swing. Shane, just let it go. I know you don't like Mitchell Stark. I know you want Richardson in there, but that's a fine delivery first up. Bowl at the stumps and swing it. It's a wicket. Absolute balmy going on everywhere. And the pressure just, it didn't relent. England were 24 for three at, at drinks. Milan was back and Root was back. And... You've got to look at it and go, the Aussies just didn't let up. They kept bowling line and length. They kept nibbling it around. They kept beating the bat. And more importantly, and especially one of the things England didn't do, they took the chances when they came to them. But the tone was set by Stark, that very first ball. That's why he's in the team. He can, he can take a team apart. He didn't take a team apart, but he created a moment that the team rode on the back of. Stokes came in, and Stokes actually, let's be honest, Stokes looked pretty good with the bat in that first innings. He looked assured, he looked controlled, he looked like he had way more time than anyone else that was at the crease, but then Cummings got one to lift to him, catches it, and uh, yeah, he's on his way. Pope and Butler looked promising. I'm sure everyone agrees with that. There was a moment where four down, and those two look everything you want them to be as test cricketers. I think you can look at them both and say they've not quite performed up to the expectations that we've probably got of them as people and as players at the moment. But Butler was counter-attacking brilliance for a period. It's, hey, let's take this T20 star and let's put him in test cricket. And this is what we want him to go and do. And Ollie Pope, for everything that Josh Butler was doing, was doing something slightly different, but doing it as well. He defended with authority. And one thing I, I loved was the way he was able to rotate the strike. It didn't matter what was going on. He was going to go and rotate it. He was going to be down the other end. And it's positive cricket without being reckless. But Butler got a decent ball. Stock just pushed one across him. And I don't know if this is going to come back, but it's going to be a question. To me, I look at that and go, hmm, playing the pull shot. Didn't quite look in control. He's not really been tested with it so far in his test career. Are we going to see a that? And it's not exactly 
the, the Aussies are shy of bowling short balls. Remember what Mitchell Johnson went and did to everyone. The tail got blew away. What more do you expect? The top five, top six have failed. So why should they be any different? And in a one-day international, we're bowled out in 50.1 overs. Yeah, I know it's a little bit more, but, it, you know, it makes the point. So why did England get bowled out for 147 on day one of the Ashes? Now, you can look at it and you go, the toss. Did he make the right decision? Maybe, maybe not. Did the Aussies bowl well? Yes. Yes, the Australians bowled very, very well. Stark set the tone, but no one gave England anything throughout. Hazelwood was class. Didn't bowl bad balls, two for 42. Pat Cummins was incredible. It's like a reincarnated Glen McGraw, just time and time again, top of off, top of off, top of off, making you play, and that's one thing England didn't do well. They played a hell of a lot of balls rather than leaving David Milan, but you learn. Five for 38 for Pat Cummins was absolutely brilliant. Nathan Lyon, he bowled a few overs, didn't really get a lot out of it. But Cam Green got a wicket as well, thrown into the mixer. He's the one that got Ollie Pope. And, you know, he only bowled a few overs here. Three, three, three overs, one for six. But out of those three overs, I came away going, Cam Green looks like he might be a bit of a cricketer. Massive hands, massive mix. But let's, let's just say, in the last 10 years, this is England's worst year for batting average. And that includes... Joe Root scoring 1,500 runs at an average of 66. So this year's batting average is 23.79 overall. It's 25 when batting first, 30 when batting second. But in the second innings of games, we're averaging about 19 with the bat, which is absolutely ridiculous. And we've been bowled out for less than 200 10 times, four of which have come in the first innings, three when we've batted first, the first innings of the game. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that's not very good. But one thing we did this year, we started well. We played well in Sri Lanka in the first test of the Indian game, and that in Indian series away, and that's absolutely fine. We're allowed to go do that. We're allowed to play good cricket. But if you take the Sri Lanka series out of it, that average keeps coming down. And the fact is, over the last 10 years, we've averaged 31.4 with the bat from 1 to 11 in the order. And we're six below that. That's, that's not cool. Now, I've got to hand it to England because I thought they bowled bloody well in the, in the Australian innings. Australia went and got 4-2-5. Sure, sure, sure. There's, there's all that. But I actually thought there were some real standout performances. I thought Ollie Robinson, we've been talking about him going, you know what? He's made for bowling in Australia. He bowls with the third highest release point in world cricket at the moment behind Carl Jameson, who's phenomenal at the moment, and uh, Jason Holder. And he bowled superbly. He didn't bowl many bad balls. Yes, he tied towards the end. Yes, he's probably not quite match fit for the length of time that he's being asked to bowl. But the guy got through 23 overs against Australia in this first innings. He did a hell of a lot of work and bowled absolutely superbly. Beat the outside edge more than I can care to remember. And Mark Wood showed an absolute immense amount of passion and pride and energy and zest and just constantly, constantly coming on for his three or four overs. Bowling 150, bowling 150, 152 clicks, 147 clicks. He was outstanding. But for all the outstanding points about how those two bowled, there was two players that really stood out for Australia. Now, I'm going to get on to Travis Head in a second. But David Warner. Now, I can't say I'm a massive David Warner fan. I I respect him as a cricketer. I think he's a hell of a player. But 18 months, two years ago, I think we all started to go, you know what, he's 33, 34. He's starting to wane a little bit. He's not scoring the same amount of runs. And then the T20 World Cup comes around and he starts scoring runs. And then the Ashes comes around. And like we say, it just means a little bit more the Ashes than anything else. And you saw something in his innings, 94 off 176 balls. It wasn't fluent. It wasn't pretty. This wasn't 
everything we'd expect David Warner to be over a long period of time. This was, we beat the outside edge, we beat the inside edge, we bounced him, we almost yorked him. He was almost run out where he's laid flat first on the middle of the pitch, trying to put his little finger in, going, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. We dropped him. Stokes bowled him off a no ball. You know, this is countless, countless times. And I can look at this bowling lineup and go, they bowled bloody well, and they were bloody unlucky as well. They got the same amount of full shot percentages in the first 10, 20 overs of the innings as the Australians did. It's just the Australians got nicks, took chances. England beat the outside edge, and likewise, when they got edges, they didn't take the opportunities. But Warner, as a person, just epitomizes Australian grit and this innings really epitomized Australian grit for me it wasn't about being flashy it was about this is the bloody ashes and if I can survive long out here it's going to be easier for everyone else when they come out and he just kept going and going and going and it was just so battle hardened and test quality cricket it was it was superb yeah, he might not make the second test. He's got he's got busted up ribs. But the impact of that knock onto the series is absolutely huge. If he goes early, if we take one of the catches, if it isn't a no ball, it's a different ball game. And Travis Head, oh, that was special. He only just made the Australian team. So everyone was going, it's Travis Head or it's Usman Khawaja, Travis Head or Usman Khawaja. He's played test cricket. He's played Ashes cricket. He averaged 27 over in England. He averages 27 away from home. But in test cricket, he averages over 40 in Australia. Now, that doesn't make him unique that he's able to play in his home country and do better. But it's more that they've gone, you know what? You're younger and we believe in you. We believe that you're good enough to play on this level. And you can look at his Sheffield Shield stats and go, yeah, I can see that. In the last 25 games of Sheffield Shield cricket, he averages 49 with six tons thrown into, you know, 2,200 odd runs. That's exceptional. The average in Sheffield Shield cricket is about 31 and he's 18 above that. So that puts him in the upper echelon of, hey, I'm pretty good at hitting a ball with a bat. Of which he averages 54 against pace, England predominantly a pace attack, and he scores at a strike rate of 57, which is very high. Is it a surprise to people that follow Sheffield Shield cricket? Probably not. They've probably gone, you know what, I've seen him play. He's very good at hitting a ball. Go you. If you watched him play county cricket in England and you watched him in the Ashes, you probably thought, ah, I didn't realise he was this good. He averaged 28 for Yorkshire. In 2018, he averaged 33 in first-class cricket for Worcestershire. And in 2021, 183 runs at 18.3. That's not really setting the world alight, is it? But this isn't dark, grey, overcast conditions with the ball just nipping around constantly and someone bowling 70 mile an hour. This is harder, faster, bouncier wickets. This is what he's grown up to play on. This is what he's grown up to do. And there's a huge amount of respect from me for anyone that goes, I'm going to a foreign country and I'm going to try and be the best version of me possible. Because even though he's gone to county cricket, and yeah, sure, he's, he's not set the world alight. He's not done a Kumar Sangakara and score thousands of runs and average 100. But he's gone there and he's bettered his ability. And it's this part of the journey as a cricketer where it starts to come to fruition. A career-defining moment? Yeah, sure it is. The man's just gone and scored 150 in the first test of the Ashes. Is it the peak? I don't know. It might be. He might have a better series. He might start doing well away from home. But right now, this 80-odd ball century is the third fastest of all time in, in the Ashes series in a test match where people struggled. It's the only century of the innings. David Warner's 94 is the second top scorer and he had to scrape around. He scored a century in a section. But only time is going to define how good a knock this is. Will it grow the legacy? Will he grow his legacy during the next four test matches and for the rest of his test career? But at the moment, 
other than sporting an absolutely fantastic mo, which looked absolutely cool, and getting fined some of his wages for swearing under the, under the uh, microphone on the stumps while he played a miss, which was absolutely funny, and potentially a little bit harsh. Who doesn't swear at themselves from time to time? It's a great knock. Man of the match appearance. Was Stokes fit? Well, he's fit to probably the best degree that he could have been when he took the field. You know, he's had this long break from cricket, which is absolutely fine to do, and more, more power to you for taking that stance and going, you know what, I'm going to put me and my mental health first. It is hard, and our expectations, because it's Ben Stokes, it's like having a, an Andrew Flintoff or an Ian Botham, just because that person's in your team, you almost expect miracles out of them, even though they've not had any game time to kind of warm up to it or become the best version of themselves and get ready to play cricket at the best of their ability. But with the bat, he looked good. I've got to say that. With the bat, he looked like he had so much time, and I was so impressed. And I feel with the bat, it's only a matter of time until he goes and gets some runs. With the ball, I thought he just looked like someone that's not really bold at all. You know, there could have been 14 no balls called in the first innings alone or in that first spell and David Warner was cleaned up off a no ball and it just looked like he knew he's like oh yeah yeah I, I think I've gone over mate and that's where we need to be careful about how we use him we saw him come up a bit gingerly on one of his knees one time and you know what he, he's the fourth bowler we need to use him like the fourth bowler it just put more pressure on to try and use him because of what happened to Jack Leach I think it's fair to say the Aussies brutalized Jack Leach almost as much as he's been brutalised in terms of treatment from the England team over the last several years. And that's not a pity party, that's just going, he's not been treated like a frontline spinner for a long time. And then the first test of the Ashes come around, it looks a bit of a green seamer and you go, hey Jack, you know, uh, you know you, you've not played in many conditions that aren't really suited for a spin. Hey, do you want to have a bowl? Has he only been used when conditions really suit a spinner? Yes. Do England prefer other spinners to Jack Lee? Yes. Rashid, Moe Nally. Dominic Bess. They help with the balance of the team. He's a genuine number 11, can't field. But do the Aussies like to attack the opposition spinner? Mason Crane, Liam Dawson, Chris Schofield, bloody Philip Schofield if he went and played. Yes, they do. And that is exactly what they did. As soon as he came on to bowl, they went bananas. Every single ball, they were trying to score runs. Every time it was tossed up, they were trying to hit it back over his head. Don't let him settle put the pressure on and force them to have to bowl their seamers into the ground. It's, a, it's an excellent tactic. It's an Aussie tactic they do time and time again. Since 2011, spinners in Australia average 46.58. It's a really, really tough job. One for 102 off 13 overs, a 7.84 economy rate. It, it's not clever, but could things have been different? Yeah, maybe. It got Marnus Labashane out, who was trying to hit him to all parts, got one to bounce a little more. That's great. Was there a little bit of naivety about not understanding the history of spinners in Australia and not offering him a little bit of support so it's not fours and sixes, it's ones and twos to help him settle into the series? As soon as the Aussies go after it, and I know you can keep the field in, and it's like, you know what, we're going to keep the field in, not going to let the game drift. If they make a mistake, we're going to get a wicket. But the Aussies have done this before. We could have been a little bit more proactive about protecting him and getting him settled into the series, let alone trying to get him settled into a test career that just constantly starts and stops. And he's, he's generally been told that you're not really good enough. England's opening problems. Holy moly, where do you start with this one? We've had Nick Compton. We've had Keaton Jennings for way too long. Then we had Dominic Sibley who can't score on the offside and scores at a strike rate of about 31. 
Now we've got Burns and Hamid, and I like both of these players. I think Hamid looks really good, and I think Burns is high quality. He can go and have a great career and score a lot of runs. But since 1980, this is the third worst year we've had for opening batsmen in Test cricket. In 1989, we averaged 17. In 1999, we averaged 21. And in 2021, we averaged 23.6. It's also the fifth slowest year we've had in terms of scoring runs with openers since 1980, scoring at a 36 strike rate. Thanks, Dom. He's not even playing. He's not even playing this game. And the amount of ducks by openers is completely ridiculous. We've had 12 this year, five up from the worst, which was in 1986. And that is 9.2 out of every 10 test matches, one of our openers will get a duck. It's not the best start for your number three or number four coming in at the start, is it? There's an ongoing joke that Joe Root's always facing in the third over. He might as well open. Well, that's still true. Test openers average about 34.5 this year, give or take one or two. And we're 11 runs below that, which uh, is third worst. But it gets worse. Don't worry. Don't don't worry. It gets worse. Away from home, we average 15.59. So, yeah. And it's not necessarily, oh, you know what the opening's about, but it's what it does. The batting was hard when the ball was hard in these conditions, particularly in the first innings where it's a little bit more green. And that puts so much pressure on your number three and number four who are being sent out practically as openers to try and deal with it, especially when Rory Burns gets out first ball. Hence, you saw a good ball to Joe Root that nipped around. Hazelwood, that was absolute class. And you got Milan that got one to rise a bit. Boom, that's gone as well. And as I said, I do like Burns. 30 test matches down into his career. It's not looking pretty, but that doesn't mean it's dead and buried. An average of 31.37 with three tons. Only Cook, Strauss, Tresco and Vaughan have had more matches for England since the year 2000 as an opener. But he does have the same average as Nick Compton, who was dropped after 10 test matches and scored 200s in his first 10 tests. And Burns has got three in his first 30. That's double the rate of getting. Can he get back to the heights? Like 1,000 runs in county cricket in 16, 17, 18. They're class. But I do start to get the feeling... This is starting to feel like a career-defining series for Burns. He averaged 28 in 2020. He's averaging 28 in 2021. If he has a poor series here, and I would give him the whole series, are you looking at a test career that ends after 34 test matches and he can go away and England need to look at moving on for the next lot of series and for the next home series that come along? I'm not saying we should, because I like Burns. I think he's a good player. And the Aussies rate him as well. They don't like watching him back because of his technique, but they rate him. But it is getting to that point of a test career. He's been given a whole lot of rope. And how long are we going to go? And Hamid, you know what? Since he's come in, I like what he's done. He rotates. He seems to have a good rapport with Burns at the crease. They rotate the strike well. I think um, Hamid looks really solid in defence. He can score runs off the front foot. He can score runs off the back foot as well. He's got ability to score all around the pitch. But one thing I really did, and I don't think I'm by myself saying this, that the Australian commentators annoyed the living daylights out of me. Talking about his low hands. Other players have had low hands and scored runs and scored runs in Australia. Just because of where his hands is doesn't mean that's going to define how he gets out or how often he gets out compared to how many runs he's actually going to go and score. And I actually thought, particularly in the second innings, he was starting to look really, really nice. So hopefully we get a little bit more out of these two opening the batting because it does set the stage for everyone else in this England team. Root and Milan were class in that second innings. This was, this was what we needed. We needed something to hold on to. And by the end of day three, we had that just belief. And, you know, we were there going, what's it going to be? Are England going to win this test match? We'd gone from we're the worst team ever 
you know, we're typical English. We're the worst team ever. And then four hours of cricket later, it's like, you know what? We might win this. The Aussies are rubbish, aren't they? And uh, we sat there at the end of day three and Root was on 80-odd and Milan was on 80-odd and, you know, life was looking really, really rosy. And then we went 77 for eight on the start of day four and it was all over before, you know, alarm clocks would have gone up in England for people to get up early and watch it. Root looked class. Root looked really class. And why wouldn't he? He, He's looked class all year. He's a class player. He's now the highest scoring English English batsman in a test calendar year of all time. He's hitting around 118 runs per test match, which puts him sixth on that English list. And if you want to know Graham Gooch's 1990 is the best going around. He scored 140 runs per test match. So it's just an incredible record. Six test centuries on the year. This was almost number seven. Uh, Cameron Green got him. You know, more props to Cameron Green. He's, other than leaving a straight one first ball, he's had a pretty good test match with what he's been asked to do. (laughs) But where would we be without him? Like, he is so good and so consistent. And even when he wasn't scoring massive centuries, he was still averaging 45, 49 or something like that. He would just always get 50. Currently sits seventh all time with 1,544 runs at an average of 63. If he goes and scores 100 odd runs in the next test match, he'll move up to number three all time. And there is a chance, a very outside chance he could get up to number two, but trying to catch Mohamed Yusuf at number one is still a little bit of a reach. I was so impressed with David Milan. So impressed this second innings because he had a really rough outing in the first innings playing at everything. You know, he's got soft hands and that's all cool. Go play with your soft hands, mate. You know, put some moisturiser, make them all soft. But the fact is in the second innings, he learned that when the ball's popping, I'm going to edge it. It bounces more than I expect. In his second innings, he left superbly. He got a massive, massive working over during the first Oh, a couple of hours of his innings. It was really, really hard yak, but he went away, made 82. Yes, he threw it away from Nathan Lyon and gave him his 400th wicket on the start of day four. But again, you're looking at a player and you're shaping yourself for the series and you go, what have I seen? I've seen, I've seen, what have I seen? I've seen Hamid start to look good. I've seen Milan and Root get in. I've seen Stokes give me enough with the bat where I go, yep, he's looking in control. I've seen a little bit from Ollie Pope where I went, I like the way he's shaping up. And we've seen a counter-attack from Joss Butler. So although we've been smashed in this test match by nine wickets, there are optimisms within that batting unit who are massively undercooked that gives me some optimism. It's interesting because I replied to, I think it was a Sky Sports tweet or a Wisdom tweet on the start of day four. And I said, you know what? My head tells me that we're going to be all over by T and we're lost. But, but my heart tells me that we're going to score another 200 runs and the Aussies will be two down at T. And uh, yeah, head one. Does this define the series? Well, it's hard to say. But history is not on England's back for having a really poor first test. But it depends where you want to look. In Australia, sure, it's, it's not gone great. 2005 Ashes, we got smashed at Lords. Came back, did all right there. We, yes, sure, were 2-1 down in that uh, never-ending home series against India. But the first test match or second test match, we got smashed and we came back and won the next one. Why? Because we had to. We had to come back. We had to fight and we had to be better. And I've got some faith that this England team is going to come back and going to be a damn sight better at Adelaide where we are a better team. Was selection to blame? I, I don't think it was. You know, you can't have a broader Anderson going out there and breaking down in the first couple of overs. If the case is they're not fit, get them ready for when they are going to be fit. But I do think we lacked a little bit of tactical nous. Should have protected Jack Leach more. Hell, we should have bowled around the wicket to David Warner. And we've just got to score more runs. We've seen glimpses. We've seen glimpses. I've got 
faith that Rory Burns will come away from this average in 30-35 because that seems a very Rory Burns thing to do. I've got faith that Hasib Hamid would, would average 30 in this series. That's what he will do. And I've got faith that Joe Root is probably going to carry this batting attack. But I'll also have faith that Oli Pope has shown us enough that he's going to have a really, really big series. So the second test is right around the corner. Rich will be back with me to go through that in the upcoming days. Can't wait for it. Pink ball test at Adelaide. Jimmy will definitely be... I'm putting... My money's there. I haven't even seen the squad. Jimmy's definitely there. He's playing. I'm going to wheel him out in a, in a wheelchair if I need to. Just bold. Stick it on a length. But exciting times ahead, guys. So if you're brand new around here, subscribe to the channel or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch us on Twitter. We're forever tweeting at Leading Edge Pod. And we will catch you guys next time. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.